guys, it's me, Chris Denson, Innovation Crush. Now look, if you know me at all, you know I'm far from the web designing type. But thanks to the folks at Weebly, I'm on my way to creating an amazing new website. Now first of all, Weebly was created for people just like me, with the desire to start their own business, the dream to be their own boss, but maybe lack a little bit in the design skill area. Now. First of all, I was super impressed with the wide variety of professionally designed, mobile-friendly themes to choose from. Then I was just able to simply drag and drop to quickly build and publish my site. Way too easy. And honestly, I can truly customize, update, and change the site anytime I want on any device. Now here's what I suggest you do. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com crush. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash crush. Weebly dot com slash crush. I hope you can at least spell the last part right. Otherwise, you shouldn't be listening to the show. All right. Talk to you soon. Hey, everybody. It's Chris Denson. Uh, Welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. Uh, I am your gracious host. If you've never tuned into this show before, we cover all things marketing ideas, innovation, uh, and a lot of people doing creative things in the marketplace. And today, the ball does not stop because I'm, uh, I, I'm thoroughly uh, encouraged by my, <laughs> by my next guest. Uh, say hello, Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Michelle. No, I'm Chris. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> Old vaudeville joke. <laughs> Old vaudeville. We do a ton of vaudeville on the show, so you're, you're, you're on par. Um, great, Michelle Thaller? Great to Thaler be here. Thaller or Thaller? It's Thaller, yeah, but Thaler. I, I answered anything. What's yeah. the difference? So I understand that the, the name is actually Northern Italian, and I understand the reason I say Thaller is because they actually immigrated to New York, and so it's kind of a New York accent. It, should, it actually should be Tala. Thala. 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 It should be Tala, but who cares about that? Oh. Even fancier. Mm. Um, so let's give the people a little bit of a, I don't know, a 90 second version of who Michelle Thala <laughs> is. I have the privilege of having kind of a unique position at NASA. Um, I'm a scientist by training. I have a you know PhD in astrophysics and I've done research astrophysics. But probably for the last 15 years, I've had a job trying to make NASA more innovative and more current in their communications. Um, doesn't it not get more innovative than NASA? Well, NASA is a federal agency, and so you know there in you know, there's there's so many good things about working for the government, but there is an underlying current of conservatism of of making sure that you're doing something that's not going to offend anybody, you know, making sure that you can please all of your different political parties. So sometimes NASA could use a little push to be a little more innovative in communications. Um, give, let's jump right in. Give me an example of a push. What what pushes have you been able to instill in the in the organization that you feel like are exemplary? Well, I mean, it's not just NASA that's guilty of this. There's this idea that when you present science, you sort of shut down emotionally. I mean, I mean, this is an effect that we've actually measured in scientists that there'll be these 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 wonderfully creative passionate people. I mean, this is why I work at NASA is I love working with people like this and you put them in front of an audience and you tell them to, you know, to explain their research and they just, they, they shut down, right? <laughs> they, they all of a sudden get very, very formal. And there's sort of this idea that you're not really a good scientist unless you present things in a very formal, stilted way. And, you know, I, I actually work with scientists before they go on television. We, we there, There's many different sorts of trainings we do. Uh, in some cases, we actually hire improv comedians to teach them about how to gauge audience response. 
uh, how to do mirroring exercises that actually forces you to look and see that you're engaging your audience. Um, you know, I mean, that's just one example. So, you know, we, 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 I like to get a little edgy and snarky in our, so, <laughs> in our social media and, and use a little more humor. Right. And, and some people are very scared of that for some reason. I don't know why. What's it like to train an engineer in the art of improv pitch and being like hyper personal? Cause and, and I think just for the sake of the audience, I think a NASA engineer is a highly functional, you know, scientific individual, which is a different, like there's an IQ and an EQ. Right. So you're working on the EQ in, the, in terms of that, like audience reading response and, you know, being personable, if you will. Um, what is that? Well, like, what's that process like to actually convert someone from, you know, a numbers of ones and zeros person to a personable individual? Mm. <laughs> well, so to some degree, that gets to the heart of kind of a stereotype that, you know, a NASA engineer is by definition a high-functioning scientific type person, but not a high-functioning emotional person. And that's not my experience, quite honestly. Um, I, I think that, you know, for the most part, NASA engineers are very normal people. I mean, I mean, this is the heresy, right? I mean, you know, I was... Normal, normal by what standard, right? Like, I, I, here's the thing. I, <laughs> am, am I normal? You, you are not normal. Okay. You, are, you, are ab, you are like, you are abnormal in a good way. Like you are, you know, by the way, guys, we are here in Panama, which is uh, very interesting. We visited a beautiful city, a yeah. new town being built in the jungle of Panama. Um, and uh, Michelle, you, you spoke a, a few yes. times. And I really think you were the umbrella presentation of what everything. That is so bizarre to me. So, I mean, I, I was so honored to be here and to talk about, I was, I was telling the wonderful story about how we're all made of dead stars, which is, is true. And, you know, you mean like Jim Morrison. <laughs> that's right. Well, Jim Morrison is part of you now. There's, <laughs> there's probably one Adam from Jim Morrison that's, you know, that's, that's, that's in you today. But you know, the, the funny thing is, is, is I, I feel so blown out of the water by the other people who are speaking. I mean, we I mean people who do seriously innovative, creative, things for social good. So, I mean, I, I have a, I have a real classic case of imposter syndrome tonight. You know, I'm sitting here going, why the hell did they invite me? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so getting back to the engineering, right? So, and, and what is normal? So everybody enjoys the stereotypes of a geek. I mean, I, I was literally at a doctor who convention last weekend. I, I have three, that was cosplaying, you know, I have my three different costumes I had. Um, but, you know, I mean, I was a postdoc at Caltech. And when I think about shows like The Big Bang Theory, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, basically I was Sheldon. Right? I was an astrophysics postdoc at Caltech. My, my, yes, we were geeky. Yes, we cosplayed. We, we, we loved, we larked, right? We, 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 we <laughs> live action role playing for those of you not, yes. not in, the, in the loop. But we, we weren't that stilted. We weren't that separate from each other. We were normal people. And so... Whether it's engineers or scientists, I mean, I mean, one of the things that you need to really talk to them about for communication is, are you actually interested in communicating? They will say things like, you know, I don't want to dumb down my science. I don't want to say it in a simple way. You know, I, I want to actually use all the rigor that the science entails. And I mean, this is where I come in, right? Mm -hmm. So a communications person might advise them and they would just brush them off. This is what had been happening. And... What I did is that I, I, I have the science chops to tell them, you know, I understand your science. I understand your need for accuracy. I, I really get that. 
but are you actually interested in communicating? You know, if you're going to be on television, if you're going to be speaking to an audience and you go over their head, you lose them, right? you offend them, then you have not communicated. What is the, what's the need for them to go and speak, right? Like, you know, I think we don't hear, I, personally, I don't hear from a lot of engineers. I We have a, a friend in common, Dan Goods, who, you know, uh, is NASA's, as I like to put it, artist in residence. Mm-hmm. And his job is to convert, you know, uh, scientific concepts into artistic expressions and public art experiences. But what is the need for the engineers to actually even get up and, and speak and talk about what NASA is up to and the, and the scientific studies that they've encountered? I don't think there's a need for everybody to be out in the public eye. I think I think it's a really legitimate thing that you can have an engineer that just wants to stay in the laboratory and not communicate. The, the thing that frustrates me is that people think that scientists are something other. And, you know, oh, my God, actually, you know, there's probably a scientist right next to you at the grocery store and you never even noticed. So, I mean, I mean, one, I mean, one of the reasons. Uh, so, so, you know, I mean, somebody had actually said to me at a public talk and we were talking about, you know, would scientists actually tell us if there was a big asteroid coming to, you know, to to destroy the earth or whatever? And I was thinking about that sentence and I was thinking, would scientists tell us? And I was like. We are us, right? right? We are, why, we are, why, we are us. Why are we not us, right? You know, we're, we're, we're not some weird automatons, you know, you know <laughs> kept in some mountain bunker. I mean, we're, we're here grocery shopping next to you. So I, I think the value of getting more scientists out in the public is right now we really need to break down this monolithic identity that scientists say this, right? I'm thinking about climate change, right? Let's call it like it is. Yes. They say, you know, climate scientists say thus. By the way, there's no such thing. Just say, just Absolutely. Say. No, that's right. <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. You know, they'll, they'll say something like, you know, climate scientists, you know, that there's a controversy among climate scientists. And they don't say, you know, you know, Michelle says or Fred says or Chris says. These are people. These, right. these are honest to goodness people. And I think there's an attempt to dehumanize us and to separate us. And that, that pisses me off. So getting more scientists and engineers out there as real people, I think is important to address this deliberate attempt to separate us. So essentially, I mean, it sounds like you, you are your own sort of social advocate, right? like it's, <laughs> it, which is an interesting like position, right? It, uh, and I want to get more into like what your normal day to day is like, right. but I think like, you are advocating on behalf of the nerd, the geek. Uh, you know, I spent some time working for a company called Machinima, which is like the entire nerddom in a YouTube scenario, mm-hmm. right? Um, what is, do you feel a responsibility to sort of be that um, the voice of you know of, of advocacy? And, and maybe I'm putting too much on it, but I, I feel like you are helping to rebrand what you know a a nasa grade scientist is rather randomly i ended up with some kind of a platform you know and i don't know you know i i'm not really sure how that happened i think it happened because i was working at jpl and and jpl is fairly near hollywood and so they would call up and say you know hey we'd like a scientist to comment about something or we'd like a scientist to appear on the discovery channel to do something and this is interesting i think it honestly i think it had to do with being a woman 
I think that they wanted. You yeah. are a woman. Just I, so, yeah. just so you know, uh, Michelle is a woman. <laughs> um, so th- there's something to be said here. You know, NASA wanted uh, a young woman scientist to be one of the, the visible faces. You know, we're diverse. You know, we're innovative. We you know, we have young women. So I I started to get asked to do these interviews. And, you know, the, the, the fun thing is, you know, I mean, nobody has ever paid me for anything. You know, I've been one of the co-hosts of How the Universe Works for five years, haven't made, you know, penny one, right? It's all, it's all just for free. I By mean, the way, I have, I have three pennies for you uh-huh. for appearing on this show. Excellent. I, I can't accept them. I'm a federal, I'm a federal. Oh, program. okay. Good. <laughs> so. You've been PR trained. I love it. Perfect. Anyways, you know, <laughs> you know so I, I started having this sort of public face. And and now, you know, I also have a, a podcast, I have followers, I have this television show. And you're absolutely right that I, I I never thought about it before, about having the responsibility. But I think that when you have a public platform, you might as well use it for, use your powers for good, right? You know, if for some reason the public eye has been on me for this brief amount of time, yes, what I'm going to do is try to break down the wall of, of the whole idea of what a scientist is like. I mean, in terms of personality, in terms of emotional connection, in terms of how they relate to the public, you know, I, yeah. I mean, as long as it's on me, it's going down. So when it, when it works, yeah. when it works, what happens, you know, what happens on the public side, what happens on the, the scientists side? Well, I mean, when it really works well, I, I've seen scientists go back and look at their research in a whole new way. There's, there's sort of a trivial thing, but it's not that trivial, that I'm out in the public eye and I get a lot of the praise for NASA, right? I mean, I mean, people have actually said to me this week, thank you for NASA. And I'm like, on behalf of NASA, NASA thanks you. I mean, <laughs> it's like, what? wait, you're welcome. I mean, I, I mean I, how am I supposed to say you're welcome for an entire agency? Um, there are so many excellent scientists that don't get the, um, the affirmation. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about is the government shutdowns where, you know, literally they shut down NASA and sent all the scientists home. And I did not expect the depth of the morale problems that created. Um, there were people who were seriously hurt by that because what we were defined as was was not essential, that we're not important. Right. The essential workers were allowed to come in during the government shutdown. But but all these people who had dedicated their lives to their research we're being told you're non-essential. And I'm more used to politics, so I kind of let that roll off my back. But I spent a lot of time talking to people that that affected rather deeply. And, you know, they'd worked so hard. You know, we, we, we get paid decent salaries, but we don't get rich. And, you know, people do this because it's their passion. And, and that hurt them. And I get to be out getting the applause and, you know, people are like, Hey, image of Pluto. Yay. And I, 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 I mean, so, but this is it a planet or is it not a planet? Oh, I, I, I don't care. <laughs> I, I so don't care. See the, the whole thing is that Pluto is a fascinating world unto its own. I so do not care what you call it. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem is that, you know, Eris is actually, we, we, we think a little physically bigger than Pluto. So we, we, we found objects in about the same orbit that are actually larger so the question was, do you add six more new planets or do you say Pluto is a member of a family? Yes. And and just for the record, Mike Brown, you know, I don't think dwarf planet was a very good term. I mean, that means it, it's not that Pluto. Dwarf, by the way, is politically incorrect. Oh, hey. It's it's not that little Pluto. Person. <laughs> little person. Little, little person planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not that Pluto was too small to be a planet. It, it, I mean, that wasn't the definition. It was that it was part of a family. And and, and that's why they changed the, the designation. But anyway, going back to the applause. Um more scientists need to be out in the public eye and realize that people support them. 
and they have to understand what it means to communicate. Communication is so important to being a scientist in many ways. Um, we all fight for grant money. It's maybe a surprise to you, but when you're a NASA scientist, you actually need to win money to do your research. And so you, you win the money from, from NASA. You can only compete for funds from NASA, but everyone else and their brother can compete for funds too. So all the Harvard professors, all the professors from the University of Wisconsin, they all compete with us for our own pot of science research money at NASA. And so you need to be able to write, you need to be able to write well, have a good narrative, make a good argument. Um, if you can learn to communicate well, quite frankly, you can win more grant money. How, how did you learn all this stuff, right? Like you are a classically trained scientist, I would imagine. Yes, I am. <laughs> With the salute, I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but, and everything you've said for the past 15 minutes is <laughs> not science, right? It, yeah, it's, it's communication. It, it's communication. How did this enter into your career as, you know, a responsibility and or an interest? One word, sex. Absolutely. That's, okay. Yeah. So um, what happened was um, I, I went to a... By the way, I've never thought... I didn't think that that, that, that would you weren't be expecting that. What happened on this show <laughs> with you, of all people. So uh, continue. Okay, so, so astronomers have this thing called the two-body problem, which is how you solve the orbit for two things that have to orbit each other, like two bodies that are the same size. How do they orbit each other? We use the same analogy for a two-career couple. And so I was doing my pure research, and I, and I thought I would end up as a research scientist. And I wanted to study objects in the southern sky. I went to Australia. And the yeah, in India. So, down under. That's Being right. In down India. under. Oh, that sounds a little more New Zealand it's to right. me. Sorry. Yeah. That's all the best I can do. Yeah. Anyway, so, you know, the, seriously, the, the first person I saw, there was this beautiful man walking around, and he was sort of looking lost. I remember thinking, that is a beautiful looking man. And, oh, oh my God, he's coming toward me. It turns out that he was the person sent to pick me up. He was another astronomer in Australia. And he worked at the University of Sydney, and he was asked to pick up this visiting astronomer at the airport because he lived near the airport. And we still have the email where he says, hell no, I don't want to be picking people up at the airport. You're always having to have somebody else pick this person up. But anyway, um, I, I fell in love, right? You know, love at first sight. I fell in love with this man who was an astronomer. And we needed to find somewhere that could hire two astronomers at once. So I, I actually left my specialty research area to move to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Caltech, where, where, where Andrew had managed to get a job. So a Andrew dropped his job in Australia to move to the United States. And I figured, you know, that's, that's pretty badass, so I, I better, you know, follow suit. And so I moved to California, and I had to change my research specialty. And I still was doing some research. Um, so I, I was a postdoc on the Spitzer mission, the, the Space Infrared Telescope, uh, and that was uh, really quite a lot of fun. I was doing some mission science, but they actually assigned to me some of the communications. And I realized that if the communications were going to be done well, there was, some, there was a rich, complex problem here that nobody else seemed to be wanting to tackle right. about how to win the money, about how to organize it, about how to communicate well. You know, Spitzer had a communication budget of about a million dollars a year. And they sort of said, hey, you know, run with it. You know, what can you do for that? So all of a sudden I realized this was a full-time job. This was a, a full-time, interesting, passionate pursuit of mine was the communications. So it, it, it started out as trying to, to be in the same place as this person I wanted to marry. Right. And and it, it became It's a love story. It's a love story. And you know, and but but the thing is, it was totally the best thing for me. For ten years I hung my head in shame and hid myself from other astronomers because I stopped publishing. 
you know, I mean, I used to be your first author papers in the Astrophysical Journal, and that all stopped when I, I started this different kind of side career. And I was ashamed of that for a while. And, you know, eventually I realized that, you know, I mean, now I'm basically winning money for everybody. So they need to be kind of nice to me. Money winner. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, at some point you were six, seven, eight years old. I assume, Apparently, I yeah. Um, what was what was that tiny Michelle Thala uh, like what? what? <laughs> that's, that's a good New York accent. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, this is like my fourth time delivering during the interview, so like I, figured, I feel like I'm I'm close. But no, what was like? What were you like as a kid that kind of you know grew you to be? Because I, I think you're the type of person where like I have a ten year old, I have a three year old, and uh-huh. I'm like. I, w- I want my kid to have like to to be that individual, right? But oh, that's very sweet. Uh, thank you. Um, but they, they won't. They won't make. <laughs> but no, what like what type of kid were you, and or how did your parents or the environment kind of um, uh, encourage you to continue to grow in that direction? Yeah, some people. I'm actually kind of proud of this. I mean, I was a bit of a weirdo. Um, some people are actually called by the stars and, and nobody knows why. And my mother has said to me that she remembers me trying to get out to look at the stars when I could walk. So before I was conscious of it, you know, I I just loved the stars. I don't know why I could never get it out of my head. Um, I received almost no encouragement in this direction. (laughs) Um, I, I was more of an artistic person, more of an emotional person, and people kept saying, you don't have the personality to be a scientist. It's just not, you're not this logical, linear, emotionless person. And it turns out that the study of the universe, the universe itself doesn't give a damn about what sort of personality you are. There's many ways to be a scientist. And yeah, okay, you need to learn the math eventually. That wasn't easy, but I, you know, I banged my head through it. I mean, learning math is like learning a foreign language. No one says to you, you know, there is no way you could ever learn Spanish, right? You're just not smart enough to ever learn Spanish. I mean, sure, there's there's some people that have a natural gift for languages, but but everyone can learn a foreign language if they try. And it's the same thing with math and physics. It's no different at all. You know, the idea that there's a certain type of personality that is a scientist is um, honestly defends me, right? I think it's a way of keeping people out of science. So... My mother was very socially active, uh, very involved in, in, in the civil rights movement and in politics, and she did not know what to do with a little kid that wanted to be an astronomer. <laughs> she didn't like science. I mean, to this day, she can't name all the planets. I actually quizzed her about it recently. And, but, She's like, uh, Pluto? Like, no, I just told you two oh, weeks ago. God. Yeah, yeah. No, so, but seriously, you know, we, we, she never stepped on my curiosity, uh. right? I mean, that, that, that's all that it's about. And I, I can't claim this as any sort of virtue, but the, the fun thing about growing up geeky is, you know, geeks get to sort of own their own curiosity and they get to get excited about things. I mean, I just came back from the Doctor Who convention where there were thousands of people all wearing Doctor Who conventions with me, you know, costumes with me, and they, we all had our sonic screwdrivers out. And you, you, get to, you get to engage and be emotional and be excited about something when you're a geek. It, it is so cool to be a geek. So yes, I had my social problems in high school and then, you know, I mean, things were difficult, but I, I had, a, I found my friends, I had a ball and I could not get space out of my head ever. I loved it from when I, when I had my first understanding of what a job was that you, oh, you could, you could become a scientist. And here's the weird thing. My first experience of a scientist was Carl Sagan, 
who had the mm. TV show Cosmos. I was 10 when that came out. And Carl is very emotional, right? Carl is very much about storytelling and emotion. And so that's what I thought a scientist was like. So my, my first image of a scientist is a little bit more about, a little more how I try to be. Were you ever bullied? Uh, you, you mentioned social difficulties. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and how do you overcome that? Because it, it's like, to me, like, I, I, you know, I may have an unpopular opinion. I think bullying has been around for a very, obviously a very long time. And, um, you know, it's like maybe there's a the school of thought that talks about like, suck it up, become successful, kill, you know, kill them with success. Um, but how did you over, if you encountered it, how did you overcome it and how did you deal with it? I cried a lot. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, a lot, a lot of tears, a lot of running home crying. I, I can't say I was a victim of terrible bullying, but 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 certainly, I mean, I, I still have these these horrific memories of my sixth grade teacher calling all of the girls because I mean he he sort of perceived that the girls were bullying me, and that was true. Calling all the girls into a room with me and saying, "Stop bullying Michelle." I mean, can you imagine how? horrifying that was <laughs> like, I, I oh my god uh, wrong, uh, right effort wrong ah, ah, ah. <laughs> I, boy that that was traumatic um so there there just there wasn't an option to be anything other than me I mean I, I wish I, I wasn't the type of person that could have done anything else I, I it, it wasn't bravery I got very used to recovering from pain and rejection and that's a superpower in life, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, even the, to this day, if somebody disses me at work, if somebody rejects me, you know, I go home and get a little teary for a while. But you understand how healing works. You understand the time frame of how you're going to get over that, whether it's being dumped by a guy or whether it's having your paper rejected, you know, or whether it's, you know, not getting the job you wanted. The, the rejection always hurts. It never stopped hurting. But I got more used to the cycle of how I heal and I was, and I trust myself to heal. So in, in some ways, the bullying started that education about, you know, here's how you deal with the, with the pain. It's not that you don't feel the pain, but you get used to how you recover from it. Was there anything about, cause there's, and not to stick on bullying for too long, but I think that not everybody recovers from it the same way you do, right? Some people like don't, end up on a path of success, right? They end up on a daunting path or a darker path. Um, what do you think it was about you or your environment or whatever that catapulted you to, to funnel that in a, in a positive energy, right? Like you return that, that energy in a really um, amazing way. Or maybe that's too deep of a question. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it's sad, but I, I see people divide along two lines about people who felt loved when they were children and people who didn't. It, it's a terrible thing for a child not to really feel loved. I can't say that my parents necessarily always approved of me or understood me. Um, it's not that there was this, this wonderful, perfect understanding in my childhood. But from the, from the very beginning, I knew they loved me, right? So that gives you the ability to find yourself. And, and that's, I mean, that, that is the one gift. I mean, you mentioned your children. So you, you said you have a three-year-old and a 10 year old, -old. I think <laughs> three-year-olds, a 10 year old, you think <laughs> have to come back in. You know, it's like a tree. You have to cut the leg yeah. off and then you count the rings. Yeah. You know, even if you never understand them, you know, even if it's, if it's two people that never really managed to complete mesh, you know, j just showing them that you love them 
I mean, that is the, I mean, keep them you know, clean and fed and, and loved. And that's the only thing a parent can do. I mean, you know, don't give me I, mean, a, I forgot the clean and fed part. Well, okay. love. I'm like, hey, guys, I love you. You got the love. Yeah. Like, clean, uh, <laughs> ish, right? Fed ish, right? I mean, as, as long as it's, you know, you know, in, in the washing. <laughs> so um, let's talk some science gobbledygook for a second. Because gobbledygook. You're good. You're, you're really good at it. And I love how you frame up. Our, and I'm going to botch it, so I want you to correct me. But like our position in the universe, and like what our creativity means in the in the idea of you know from a scientific perspective. Um, and I know you can go on about the topic for hours, but like if you can try to su- summarize it in a sense <laughs> to say you know to like to really talk about the human relation to the universe and what that all means on a from a day to day operational me as Chris Denson or you as Michelle Thaller or, you know, whatever Joe Schmo individual, uh, what they do. Every day. Well, it's funny just today, somebody was asking me what it means when Mercury is in retrograde. And of course that reminds me of all the, you know, sort of astrology crap out there. But the, the kind of beautiful thing about that is that people keep looking for a connection to the universe. And I mean, I mean, dude, all you need to do is breathe, right? I mean, I mean, you are the universe. I mean, the only thing that makes the atoms in your body all except the hydrogen, which started at the Big Bang. The only thing that makes everything else are stars. I mean, I mean, I mean, do you get this is literally true, right? The only thing that makes the carbon atoms that make up most of your body, they had to be fused in the core of a star. That's the only way you get them. And then that star explodes, the material gets distributed into the galaxy, new stars and planets form out of that, and, and there you are. So... You know, the, this connection to the vastness of space and time is is your next breath. You know, the you know next time you 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 bleed and you see your blood, you know the iron, the, the what makes your blood red had to come from a supernova explosion, a massive star exploding violently. You know, you, the entirety of the galaxy in space and time is is is, is right inside your eyes, right? You know, right inside you. And so you don't need to try for a connection. You know, you don't need to do anything to be a cosmic miracle except take your next breath. Um, where where does God come into play? Like, you know, for someone who believes in a higher power or being um, that either created what you just talked about or created that individual. Like, have you have you had a chance to examine that? And what have you come across and what are some trains of thought in that arena? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I love to defy any type of label. And if anybody, you know, talks religion, I, I tend to sort of, you know, run away as quickly as I can. I, I, certainly, God doesn't play, the, the traditional definition of God doesn't play a big role in, in, in how I see the universe. But you have to understand the humility of scientists, that I get that we don't even know what the nature of reality is yet. You know, I mean, there's so much we don't understand. Could there be vast intelligences that we're not even aware of? Sure, right? I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't discount that as impossible. You know, could they have influenced the way the universe evolved? Possibly. That's outside the realm of science. Science it has to be about what you can eventually design an experiment, either prove or disprove. Maybe you can't design it right now. You don't have the right data, the right technology, but you know, you have to understand the pattern here. I mean, it used to be that we attributed natural forces to gods, like lightning, right? I mean, lightning was the god Thor, if you were in Northern Europe. 
And, you know, we, we now find out that, you know, lightning is caused by you know, friction and, 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 you know, or his brother Loki. Okay. There you go. So, you know, when, when, <laughs> when, uh, some people have said to me, it's like, well, you, you know, you, you can't discount God because you don't understand what set off the big bang. Someday we will, right? Someday we will understand what set off the Big Bang. And then there'll be even more questions as to what created that thing or how that came about. I don't think we're ever going to reach the ultimate truth. But whatever God is, and I have my own spirituality, um, don't relegate God simply to places that we don't know. I mean, God should be more with us and, and present in our lives and not just, oh, hey, you haven't yet proved how the Big Bang happened. Therefore, God must exist. Do you not see the pattern that as we've reached out in the universe and, and looked farther and farther, there's always been a scientific explanation. And you never it, you never just find out, oh, hey, except for lightning. Lightning was indeed Thor, but everything else, that was science. I mean, no, there, there will be rational explanations for everything. And w whatever God is in our lives and our spirituality I think should be much more immediate and close to us than being relegated to questions we haven't found the answer to yet. You have a, a, a very infectious passion about what you do. <laughs> um, I, I would love to hear you define what passion is to Michelle. I cannot get the joy of the beauty of the universe out of myself. I, I, I have to respond to it. You know, it, it's like hearing an infectious music beat and you have to move. Um, it's not that I am always joyful. I, I've had my issues with depression. I, I've had my, my times of sadness, but, but something about me, you know, ever since I was a little kid trying to get out to look at the stars before, you know, basically as soon as I could walk, um, I, in, in some ways, I'm, I'm so grateful for that gift that I feel joy. I feel a tremendous loneliness and a drive to connect with other people because of, 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 I think I'm very, very mortal. You know, I, I think that I'm a little collection of atoms that comes together briefly and then disperses. I mean, that, that's my personal view. So I have a tendency to jump on people and want to connect really deeply because I, I only have, you know, 90 years if I'm lucky. It, you know, time to connect. The only thing that makes me feel okay about the universe. The only thing that, that combats the loneliness a little bit is, is other people. I guess loneliness is, was a thing I was thinking about as I was preparing to interview you, because I, I think when you have this, you know, mile high view of <laughs> the world and how we operate and where we, we don't all have that, right? Like we don't all get to think about that on a day to day. Most of us are like, Groceries, check to check, uh, you know, pick up the kids from school. It's kind of a first world problem. Yeah, yeah we don't we don't get to we don't get to pick up and, and do what you do on a day to day basis. So, like, how do you? I'll say dumb it down, right? Whether or your your social um, appetite for connection. Do you feel like you have to like bring it down a little bit, or can you afford to be you on a like a twenty four seven basis? Oh, hell no. I'm not dumbing down anything. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, every single person has something to teach you. Oh my God. Absolutely. Good Lord. I mean, yes, some of my friends have Nobel prizes. They do. And, you know, some of my friends are farmers and I mean, I mean, every single person in the world is, I'm not kidding. I mean, I mean, a miracle on a cosmic scale. If you can't learn something from everyone you meet, you're not doing it right. So 
it's not a question of dumbing it down. It, it comes back to the word communicating, right? You have to meet people where they are. You have to speak the language they speak. If you get in front, up in front of an audience and speak, you know, Serbo-Croatian, you know, and I mean... Which not, I've done on a, on a few occasions. Absolutely. I mean, by accident. Gee, no big surprise. People aren't going <laughs> to respond to that real much unless you're, you know, speaking somewhere where they speak Serbo-Croatian. I mean, what is communicating about? It's not dumbing it down. It, 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 it's actually trying to meet people where they're living and putting it in terms that they can actually ingest and enjoy and be inspired by. Do you have an example? So, you know, oftentimes I'm talking to members of the public about the life cycles of the stars. And, you know, I'm not even sure if people understand the scale of what a galaxy is or, or what an atom is. I feel, I feel bad using those terms. So you, you, you try to, you go back to the improv comedy, you look into their eyes, you try to figure out how they're responding. You know, did they kind of look away? Did they, did they wince? You know, I, th- this, I'm always trying to read the audience and see where I've lost them. And I don't think it's at all dumb to not understand what an atom means or not understand what a galaxy means. I think there's kind of a, um, a little bit of a, of a heresy here that, you know, when you say the word galaxy, most educated people kind of nod their heads and they, they think they know what you mean. But when you actually get them to, to tell you What's the scale of a galaxy? How big is it? They have no idea. I'll show them a picture of a galaxy and I'll say, okay, here's a a beautiful Hubble image of a galaxy. How big do you think the sun would be compared to this image? So, okay, I'll say, okay, let's say the sun is the size of a dot of an eye. And the sun is, of course, huge. You could fit a million Earths inside the sun. But a dot of an eye. So the sun's that scale. How big is the Milky Way? And they'll start guessing, oh, is it it as big as this building? Is is, is it as big as this, this city? You know, I mean, if the sun were the dot of an eye, the Milky Way would be the size of the earth. And so I, I, I think that even educated people don't really get what these scales are. I, I still don't get it. And you, and you just explained it. Which, <laughs> if the sun which, were the size of a dot of an eye, the galaxy would be as big as the earth. Yeah, come on. You can, you can do that. <laughs> so it, it's funny. People disengage from that because sometimes what I tell people, and here's this is a funny little, you, you talk about communicating. This is a little lie I do sometimes. I've noticed this, that if I say that this, if the sun is the size of a dot of an eye, I'll say a galaxy is like New York to Los Angeles. And everyone goes, ooh, because they can kind of picture flying from New York to L.A. and someone's like reading a paperback book down there and there's a little dot of an eye. Right. Um, I get less reaction when I say it's, it's actually the size of the earth because there the, the brain kind of demurs from it. I mean, people don't really understand how big the earth is. So New York to L.A. is not, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a huge lie. I mean, if you maybe expand that by a factor of 10 or so, then you get the right, the right number. But it's funny how I'll actually sometimes change the scales a little bit so people will respond to them more. Well, it, you know, it, it, that touches on a whole other issue, which, you know, the idea of translation, right? That you have yeah. to translate what you do into something that's digest. We all have to do it, right? Like if, if you're on a job interview and you're like, I was a, you know, a bookkeeper at this company, like the person you're talking to is, probably doesn't know what exactly that means. Mm-hmm. And you have to make that bookkeeping experience relevant to that individual, individual, to that job, to that company. So um, I applaud you for being an, an amazing translator because that, that's hard, especially for something as grand as and as cosmic as the universe. Um, as we begin to wind down, 
I put a lot of effort into it, right? People think it just kind of happens. It totally doesn't. I mean, I, I try lots of different ways of explaining things. I, I get it wrong. I, I see how the audience reacts. I mean, it, it's like a comedian trying out jokes. And you see which ones work and you see which ones don't. Um, I, I, I put a lot of thought in, into how I explain these things. And, and it shows. Like, it, <laughs> it, 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 I mean, you're like... I don't know. Like when I listen to you, whether it, the interesting thing about you, and this is just an observation, whether you're speaking on a stage, having a conversation with someone or sitting in an interview format like this, you sound exactly the same. Like, is that good? Is that bad? I, I, don't, I don't know. But I, I think most of us get into circumstances where we feel like we have to communicate something differently, but like your cadence, your enthusiasm, your, um, I don't know, your uh, openness to, to even be patient with the, with the process seems to always be static and always be the same. Um, I don't have a question there. It's just, it's just Wait, a, a, what you see is what you get. Right. I mean, I don't know how to be anything else. I'm not an actor. Right. I mean, I mean when I'm up on stage, when I'm on television doing you know, my, my, my astronomy shows, I'm very conscious of the fact that I don't know anything about acting. Uh, you know, this is this is just me. 